Thank you for being here this morning. And um, thank you, Pastor Gray, for the opportunity, the right reverend of New Valley downtown. Um, I really appreciate this. And I think that we should also show our appreciation for Gray and his family because he has been through quite a bit over the last few weeks, even though he was joking about it earlier before. Um, I do, and I know we all do, for those of you that are members here, appreciate your faithfulness to this church. So thank you so much. So enough about you. Let's talk about me for a little bit. So for those of you that don't know me, um, again, my name is Anthony Converti. Um, and I am a Phoenician. I, have, uh, I was born here in Phoenix, just uh, St. Joe's Hospital, just a few streets um, down, the, down the road from here, which by blood makes me um, an Arizona Cardinals fan. So if you are a Dallas Cowboys fan in here, then this message has nothing but the judgment um, of, and uh, hellfire and brimstone. But if you're not that, or you don't care about football, I'll pray for you after the service. But um, we're all good here. So apart from that, my wife and I are celebrating our 13-year anniversary this Thursday. <laughs> Lots of applauses. I like this routine. You can give that hand for her because it's been incredible. We have three beautiful children, um, all born in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and we moved back here to Phoenix. Um, it's been about six years, and we've been attending the church for almost that long now. So it's been a pleasure and an honor uh, to be here and to see all the shifts and changing and what God's doing here. So I'm um, very happy about all of that. And I do want to brag real quick on the catechism class, the Weinbrenners, the Cutscos, Nate Curtizzi, thank you so much for your service. And if you guys don't know for your service, that's like we're in the military, um, <laughs> maybe it could be likened to that a little bit. Uh, the, the catechism class is a, a very important thing that we've established for 7 to 10 years old because we believe that the discipleship that comes along with the question and answer as it pertains to your faith can really help equip kids um, at that stage of life to help answer not only their personal questions, but honestly, the New City Catechism, which we follow, it's a 52-week um, question and answer format that Tim Keller and his church developed, and it's super useful for me. I would encourage you, if your parents in here, to use it with your kids um, in conjunction with what we teach on Sunday, and it's got an adult mode and a child mode, and I prefer the child mode even for myself because it helps break it down really easily, um, but it's a super useful tool, and i um, very thankful that we have the opportunity to do that. So um, that being said, uh, why don't you guys go ahead and, if you have a Bible, um, let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6, and if you don't have your Bible, you can use your phone, um, tablet. I realize that I'm pretty old school. I've seen a lot of pastors and preachers use iPads, and I don't have that. I've got technology everywhere else, but here I have my folder that I used when I was preaching, which for me, I have a little bit of a ministry background. Um, about eight years ago, um, I was a youth pastor for close to seven years. Um, at a church in Virginia Beach and had the awesome opportunity doing that. But this is my folder from back then. has my son's picture on the front there, which I didn't get his permission to show it. So sorry, not sorry about that. Um, but anyways, Mark chapter 6. If you have your bulletin, you can turn to it there as well. And um, let's begin to read in verse 1. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, 
and among his relatives and in his own household. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. So if you want to title this message, I think it might be in your bulletin. You can title it Marvelous Unbelief. For me, it's quite shocking, and sometimes I think I can be guilty of this. You can read the Bible, and it can seem very two-dimensional. Oh, Jesus went to his hometown, and the people there rejected him. But there is a lot of tension going on in this room right now. And what I tried to do when I was preparing this message is picture myself as one of the disciples. Um, And Peter is usually easy to pick on because he messes up all the time, so I can relate to that. So I imagine myself as Peter... And if you've been reading through the book of Mark like we have, and I know we've taken a a break for the vocation series, but Jesus has been doing some incredible things that Peter has been around for. Um, Peter has witnessed Jesus raise a girl from the dead. He's witnessed a woman get healed with an issue of blood just by her touching his garment. He's commanded the wind and the waves to obey him. Um, And he's also cast out demons from a demon-possessed man, and the demons then went into a a herd of pigs who then jumped into the water and drowned. That miracle in and of itself is a bit crazy. So you can think that from Peter's perspective, Jesus has command over nature, he has command over demons, over death, and over sickness. And I'm Peter, and I'm thinking to myself, I've, I've bet on the right person. This Jesus, he's got to be going places, because he's doing some incredible things. And now we are going to his hometown. So they have to be rolling out the red carpet. Hopefully, they're going to put us maybe up in the Weston or the Ritz-Carlton or there's not going to be any last minute Airbnb bookings that we got to worry about. I mean, this is going to be royalty treatment. And you get to the synagogue and Jesus begins to teach. And Peter notices that the crowd amongst him, they have furrowed eyebrows. They're crossing their arms. They begin to be very displeased. And then they shout at Jesus because they are not happy with what he has to say, and they are exhibiting a form, a fashion of marvelous unbelief. How is that possible? And for me, one of the biggest questions that we're going to be wrestling with, with this text, and that I've had to wrestle with, is this one massive question. If the people who were that close to Jesus, Jesus' hometown, these are people that grew up with Jesus' family, they know Jesus' mom, his brothers, his sisters, maybe they went to the same school together, they ate together, laughed together, cried together, there was an intimate setting here, and if people were that close to Jesus in that day and age, and they could exemplify marvelous unbelief to that extent, what about me? I don't have Jesus physically in front of me. If they could be that um, unbelieving towards Jesus in that context, are there forms or fashions of unbelief in my heart? Because I think it's easy, again, for us to read this text with our modern eyes. And, you know, there's 2,000 years ago. I know what I know now. I would never reject Jesus like that. I would never do something like that. But what we have to remember is that the same sin from the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve that exemplified itself and showed itself through history, and that the same sin that it shows itself with those people in Nazareth on that day still is in our hearts as well. And so where is this unbelief? Is it in our hearts? And if it is, what do we do about it? Because if they could show some kind of marvelous unbelief and reject Jesus, and then Jesus could do hardly any miracles in his hometown as a result as our rejection of Jesus, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, prohibiting God from doing something incredible in our life? That's the question that I think we need to wrestle with this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity 
to be able to speak to you this or to everyone here this morning. Give me wisdom. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up hearts and minds to receive your word and that your name alone, Jesus, would be lifted up and glorified as a result of this. And we give this time up to you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Halloween is coming up. Any Halloween fans in here? Some of you, some of you not. Some of the kids in here, I'm sure, are happy about Halloween. I am, I am not the biggest fan of Halloween, necessarily. I'm the dad who will wait till the very last minute to get his costume and figure something out. I'll be rummaging through Goodwill just to try to put something together. Um, I don't know if there's any other people like that in here, but my kids, my wife loves Halloween. Um, it's even referred to as a holiday. I don't get that day off, though. Do you get that day off? I'm not getting that day off. Um, but it is, unless it falls on the weekend, I guess. But Halloween's fun. The only thing that I get to appreciate about Halloween is that my kids get to go out and gather all this candy and that I get to participate in some of that. I only request just a tithe, you know, 10%, not much. Unless it's a heavy dose of Butterfinger or Twix, then that ratio could extend probably a little bit more than that. Um, but my wife had this amazing idea, got this idea from a talk show um, host who said, hey, parents, wait till the day after Halloween or a week after Halloween and film this setting happening. Sit your kids down and tell them that you ate all the Halloween candy and then watch their reaction and then film it and then send it in. So you see all those reactions and my wife was like, we should do this with our kids. This is gonna be great. And I'm uh, thinking, okay, well, I'm just gonna be an innocent bystander and I'm assuming I'm gonna be the bad guy. So um, that's pretty much how it was. We sat our kids down and um, we, we, we had them all around the table. I think it might have been the day after Halloween. This is a couple years ago. And said, hey, you know what? Do you guys remember where your candy was? Yeah. Do you think it's still there? Yeah. Well, Dad ate all of it. And then the shock and horror and unbelief. Are, are there any Star Wars fans in here? Because Empire Strikes Back, I'm not talking about the first three, because, come on, those can be pushed aside. Four, five, and six. Empire Strikes Back, where Luke realizes that Darth Vader is his father. This is impossible. And so now I'm the bad guy. How is it possible that dad could be doing something like this? All this candy that I have amassed for myself and dad ate all of it. And we filmed it and we, we didn't submit it, but we do have that as evidence and it was great. And now every other Halloween from since then until now, I don't get any candy. They hide all of it from me. So I don't even get my tithe, not even 1%. So it backfired. But much like my kids had protected their candy, the Nazarenes in those days, they had a religious code of conduct. The synagogue where Jesus was teaching that morning was very important. It was a very important piece of their culture, their structure. And for those of you that might not be familiar with what a synagogue looked like, it was probably very similar to the size of this stage, maybe rectangular in shape. There would be benches or seats on three sides, and where the stage would be would be something called the Moses seat. And that would be where a priest or a rabbi or a teacher would open up the Torah and would be able to speak or preach from the designated text for that day. Now Jesus sh shows up in that context, in that situation, and he begins to preach and expound on the scriptures. And the Jewish people put the synagogue in place to contain and maintain their culture. Because much like maybe similar to dad attacking and eating candy, the Jewish nation had been attacked and held captive, exiled over centuries of time. And this synagogue was a way for them to be able to create and maintain their cultural heritage. 
This is what they needed to do to pass on to the generations their belief in Yahweh. And now Jesus was coming in and preaching and teaching in ways that were messing with their cultural context. And so maybe this morning you might have something similar where maybe you have barriers around certain areas of your life where you've protected them and only you or certain experts or people that you think should have a say in that area can only talk about it, but nobody else can. Maybe it's politics. And we're going to be talking about politics. Um, Maybe it's your social status. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's finances. Maybe there's these things that you have tried to protect and maybe still are trying to protect. And Jesus' words this morning might have something to say about how you should view those things as a result of what he's saying here. And so the Nazareth response, because of how Jesus was acting that morning, was insulting. And if you read, I think it's in verse, um, let's see, Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? So again, in Jewish context, you would not refer to somebody as the son of their mother. You would always refer to them, even if the father was dead, which we could probably assume that at this point in time, Joseph was probably dead. Um, you You would refer to Jesus as the son of Joseph. But in this context, they are saying, wait, you're just a carpenter, the son of Mary. So they are inferring that he has very scandalous beginnings. And not only that, that his tradesmanship as a carpenter is very menial. It's manual labor. It's just a very ordinary thing. And so they are attacking Jesus in a way that is very insulting. And why would they do that? Because they would only think that somebody, if he's going to be a prophet or the Messiah, they would have to have multiple boxes checked in order for that to happen. Not be a manual labor would be one of them. Not have scandalous beginnings, born out of wedlock, would be a second one. You would have obvious heritage to the lineage of David. Maybe the temple themselves would be sending Jesus. But Jesus came out of context in very ordinary ways to confront their belief system and how they viewed his word. And so you would also think at this point in time that Jesus' family might stand up for them or stand up for him. Because... Again, in this passage, they're referenced. Are, is it not your brother, or is not Jesus your, your brothers and your sisters here? So it, it seems as if his brothers and sisters would have been in the synagogue at this time, and possibly even Mary at that point in time. But what are they doing? Nothing. I mean, you would hope that maybe if your family was there and you had some kind of moment similar to Jesus, that they might be like, okay, time out. Like, this is getting out of hand. Why are you, you know, talking like this to Jesus? Let's just tone it down. But... You could probably also imagine that Jesus' family also had their arms crossed and they were probably shrugging in some form of like approval of what the Nazarenes were saying about Jesus in that day. And that's also difficult to believe because one of the things that I think is important for us to understand in this passage that we're not going to really get into is that being a Christian and something that Jesus says in another passage is a servant is not greater than his master. So if Jesus experienced rejection to the extent that he did at his own hometown, how much more so, if Jesus is our master as Christians, would we need to experience or might experience rejection even from the people that are closest to us? Further on in this, past, or in this chapter, you're going to see that he's going to send out the disciples, the twelve, um, to preach and, and cast out demons, and then John the Baptist gets beheaded. So there is this context, this theme that Mark is trying to show that, guess what, as a Christian, you will have some form or fashion of rejection that comes up 
and what will you do about it when that happens? That doesn't mean you go searching for rejection, but that does mean that there, it's not always going to be nice when people confront you or your belief system or the way that you live or the way that you talk confronts other people in the way that they live, that it is possible that rejection will come as a result of that. And Jesus responds with his proverb that a prophet is honored and respected everywhere else except in his own country, his own hometown, and his family. So Jesus doesn't try to appease the crowd. This isn't, you know, the nice Jesus or the Jesus that you have a picture of that's holding a lamb, you know, snuggling a nice cuddly lamb. It's not the footprints in the sand Jesus poem, for those of you guys that know the footprints in the sand. This Jesus basically tells the Nazarenes, and it's also um, a proverb that could apply to the Jewish nation in a, in a total context, but he's saying, in so many words, you guys are a broken record. You're playing the same old bad song, maybe it was a Dave Matthews song, that centuries of Israelites have been playing when they've rejected the words and the prophets of God, you guys are now guilty of that as well. You are rejecting me, which means you are rejecting God. And for all we know, Jesus leaves Nazareth healing a few people. And from this context, we don't see him go back to Nazareth. That's it. He leaves them. There is that rejection, that moment where he's like, you're not receiving me. You're not accepting me. Then that's it. And in other contexts as well, again, it doesn't look like that he went back. So what is it? that caused the people in Nazareth uh, on that morning, on the Sabbath, on the sy- in the synagogue, to exemplify that kind of marvelous unbelief, to where they would act or react to Jesus and his words in that way. And so what I want to cover this morning are just three ways in which we can see the stages of marvelous unbelief work their way through the Nazarenes and how that could also apply to us this morning as well. So here's the first stage of marvelous unbelief that we can see in verse 3. They doubted the authority of Jesus. So if you go back to verse 3, you can, say, you can see him again saying, or them saying to Jesus, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? He was too ordinary for them. He, he did not check the boxes of the Messiah or a prophet, so they dismissed him completely as a result of that. He didn't have the status or education that they thought that he would need to have in order to be able to proclaim the words that he was saying in that moment in time. So they doubted his authority. The second thing that they doubted, after the authority of Jesus is dismantled, now they doubt the words of Jesus. That's the second stage of marvelous unbelief. So you can see in verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? So they doubted his words. And then the third thing, the third stage as a result of this is they doubted his works. So you start with the doubting of Jesus' authority, that he's the Son of God, the Messiah. We're going to dismiss that. Now any word that he has to say about us or to us, if it doesn't fit our culture or our context, I'm not... I'm not agreeing with it. If you're not support, I could maybe dismiss your scandalous beginnings. I could maybe dismiss the fact that you don't have the education or status that I think you should have. If you're saying to me words that fit and encourage the way that I'm living currently, maybe they would have done that. But at that point in time, they couldn't because what Jesus was saying to them at that time, and maybe we could even mirror a little bit of what his words would have been when we look at another occasion of him preaching at a synagogue in Capernaum where he opens up the scriptures and preaches from Isaiah, a passage that says that, you know, I've come to heal 
um, the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind, to release the captives. And he says, in this moment, this passage is fulfilled here with me. So we don't know what passage he read here, but if he did something like that, that he did in Capernaum, what he did there in Nazareth, you could imagine the commotion that it would cause because those words would force the Nazarenes to change how they believed and how they lived immediately in that context. And so the third thing after the words, like I said before, is they doubted the works of Jesus. Again, in verse, in verse 2 at the very end of it, how are such mighty works done by his hands? So you don't see them asking if those works happened. They clearly saw or heard or maybe even witnessed themselves that Jesus healed people that were sick, raised people from the dead. And even with all those miracles happening, they still doubted that Jesus was who he said he was. Because if you dismantle his authority, you doubt his words, and now you doubt the works, even as, as amazing as they might be, they still aren't enough to prove that he is who he says he is. So how do those three stages of marvelous unbelief apply to us? Because again, maybe in our context, I would never reject Jesus like this, but I found how these three ways apply personally to me. And maybe you will find something similar in your extent. But how would maybe doubting the authority of Jesus apply in our life? Maybe you're here this morning and you might believe that Jesus is a way, but maybe he's not the way, the truth, and the life. And my prayer for you this morning is if that's you, that the Holy Spirit would reveal himself to you through the preaching of the word. But maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. So you have that peace already recognized authoritatively. But there are other elements, other ways in which our sinful nature will develop. Like John Calvin, one of the early reformers in the church, said that our hearts are like idle factories, constantly pumping out these things that we want to put our trust and belief in. And so while we might recognize Jesus' authority over here, and maybe in the context of church or certain areas of our life, when it comes to these other things... Maybe it's our status, maybe it's our job, maybe it's what's in our bank account, maybe it's in that degree that we need to get, or that test that we need to pass. And we put these, these things, these, um, our focus and our trust and our faith in these elements apart from Jesus' authority, where at the end of the day we have to recognize that if God is who he says he is, and Jesus did what he said he did and is doing, that we need to recalibrate where our trust is, and not let our faith, our hope, and our belief be um, capped or be held captive by these other things. Because in our day and age, it's very easy to get distracted by the things that are constantly calling for our attention. There's always a new shiny object to chase. And this morning, how marvelous unbelief can creep in is that you start to put your faith and belief in those things. Well, maybe when I retire, or maybe when I get that degree, or maybe when I reach this amount in my bank account, or I get this status at my job, then things will be better. And it's not bad to have ambition. And in our series on vocation, we've talked about the importance of work and how that applies to us as Christians. But it's so easy for our sinful nature to creep in there and allow our trust and faith to be placed in those things. And unbelief removes Jesus from his authoritative position in our life and puts it in the other things that are in front of us. What about words? So you doubt the authority of Jesus. How do we doubt the words of Jesus? Because once the authority of Jesus in our life has been removed or diminished or compartmentalized, now his words are very easy to pick and choose amongst what we read in the Bible. If it doesn't work in my context, 
or if I don't agree with what the Bible says about this, I'm just going to cut and paste whatever supports my belief system and what I want. And what we end up doing is replacing a lot of what Jesus has to say with what we feel in our gut or our intuition is best. And that's where things can get dangerous because now all of a sudden we're removing Jesus' authoritative position. Now his words mean a lot less. And then we talk about things that only apply to us in the Bible and we dismiss some of the words that Jesus has to say to you and me that are very important. Like, for instance, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. Sometimes in the liturgy we'll say the Beatitudes at the very end. I love the Beatitudes. Anybody else in here love the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's nice. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I love that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, I'm pure in heart, right? So I'm going to see God. Now you get to the very end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I might remove that. And then you go to the next verse. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When um, people revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so the prophets were persecuted before you. Now, I can get rid of all of that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I would rather be liked by other people who don't agree with me. Maybe they aren't a Christian or they have different belief systems. I would rather like come to terms with them and not realize that part of the Christian life and what's exemplified here in this passage is that rejection could be and might be commonplace in certain areas, even by those who are closest to you. And we must remember that Jesus' words are the foundation for what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And so the third and last way that marvelous unbelief can creep into our lives. We, number one, again, we begin to doubt the authority of Jesus. The second way is we doubt the words of Jesus. They begin to mean a lot less, or we only apply them in the context that we agree with. And the third way is that we doubt his works. And the works become something that is very easily dismissed. And this is how it applies to me. I would rather put my faith and trust and my belief in my personal works, how I'm doing at my job or how I'm doing with these certain things. If I can do these right things and accomplish these right steps, then my works end up becoming the things that justify me. And it helps us with that. Maybe it's promotions, good grades, well-behaved children. That's always something that I'm wrestling with. And they're very well-behaved this morning. I hope I didn't just jinx that. Um, you know, a marriage or a dating life, all of these things can be very good things, but they cannot be the things, and God wants them for us, but they must not be the things that we rely upon. Here are the works that Jesus has put to us that it's very easy for me and maybe for you to dismiss are when the word is being preached on Sunday, the liturgy, when we can come in here and maybe you've had a really rough week. And you're thinking, man, if I could just take that vacation, maybe get to that beach and just lay there and read. Anybody like doing that? That's a, an easy thing for me to think that I need to do. But what we forget is that what happens here on a Sunday, what God's works are doing are very important. When you can, can come in here and confess your sins and then get an assurance of pardon, which is beautiful, sing hymns to God and then hear Pastor Gray preach the word that is a very powerful exchange of God using the Spirit to encourage and equip the believers. That's something that's easy for us to dismiss. And then there's two other elements of God's works, baptism and communion. 
and we forget about the importance of these elements. If you've been baptized here, that is God's sign and seal, his promises on you, that you are a part of the church family, communion. When we come here later at the end of the service or just after we're done preaching here, and we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, that his body and blood are here, that the spirit is present here, he is feeding us. This is important and extremely valuable, but we can just look at this bread and forget the baptism even happened like a high school degree and remember and forget that Jesus has promised his forgiveness, his grace and mercy on us through these things. And that's where I think that we need to understand that marvelous unbelief, if you can maybe remember just one thing as we close up the message this morning, about all of the things that I've said, is that you can combat marvelous unbelief by just trusting in the ordinary words and works of Jesus. Baptism, communion, the words being preached on a Sunday, the Bible, Jesus' authority, all of those things, amidst all the shiny objects that we can chase on this planet and on this earth as we live and we breathe and we do our life, if you can just remember that Jesus has died and rose again for you, and he's here this morning wanting to forgive and give you grace. And just like Jesus was doing uh, or walking away from the Nazarenes, is it possible that our unbelief could cause Jesus to walk away? The gospel this morning is that when Jesus was on the cross and he took on our sin and our shame and the sky went dark, God turned his back on his son so that we wouldn't have to face that rejection. And if you put your faith and trust and belief in Jesus this morning, then he takes that unbelief and he saves you and redeems you from that. And that's what we're here to believe in this morning, that Jesus died and he rose again for you and for me. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity again to hear and preach the word. I do pray that uh, for every person in here that struggles with unbelief, me in particularly, that you would continue to allow your spirit to work in and through us, that we would trust in your words, that we would trust in your ordinary words and works, Father. Even as we come in here later to take communion, that we would remember that you are here among us, feeding us, that you are here guiding and protecting and preserving us. We put our faith and trust in you, Jesus, this morning, and we thank you for all that you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen.